Church of Christ presents An Unexpected Hour, the sermon by the Rev. Gene Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, August 11th, 2019. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is the Beloved's good pleasure to give you the whole realm. You strive for it, yet it is pure gift. You long for it, yet you already have it. You want to know your place in it but it is all yours. It's easy to forget, but it's the most important thing. You know you need it, but even more, you need to trust it is given to you, all of it, gladly, everything you need, everything. A reflection by Pastor Steve Garnis Holmes. When I left Oregon on July 19th, terrible things were happening in the world and just outside our doors. The president was insulting members of Congress, women of color, and then basking as rally crowds shouted, send her back, about one of the women, a United States citizen elected by her peers to serve in Congress. The EPA was busy removing restrictions on pollutants and the immigration services continued to keep children in cages at our southern border. We decided as a family to keep our access to the news at a minimum while we were on our long-anticipated Alaskan adventure. Now, I know many of you in this congregation who are longtime Oregonians have traveled to Alaska. It is, after all, a very short flight to Anchorage. But I grew up on the East Coast, And Alaska was a wild, faraway wilderness filled, and it filled my imagination. So much so that David and I longed to go there for our honeymoon, but we were graduate students living in Virginia, and we just couldn't afford it. So 30 years later, we finally made this long-anticipated trip. And we decided that during that trip, we wouldn't touch down and read the news we decided to focus on the idea that Frederick Buechner captured so well when he said, the madness and lostness we see all around us and within us are not the last truth. They're not the last truth about the world, but only the next to the last truth. So for almost three weeks, even when we had internet access, we clicked on not one single headline. We didn't make it to church while we were away either. We were off in the backcountry each of the three Sundays we were away. Instead, we had three whole weeks of Sabbath rest. Earlier this week, as David and I returned, we had an unexpected delay at the airport in Ketchikan. We were there for several hours, and we started to look at our phones and to click on the headlines of the Post and the Times and all our other usual news sources. And terrible things were happening in the world. Mass shootings in Gilroy and Dayton and El Paso, racist comments from our president, immigrant workers being rounded up, and their children seemingly set adrift, 
children who had been at their first day of school. And we were crushed by the seemingly deliberate cruelty of that. Terrible things are happening just outside our doors. And yet, in this text, Jesus says to us also, do not be afraid, little flock. It is God's good pleasure to give you the realm. Our Sabbath time away, reveling in the beauty of the world, resting from the onslaught of the news, gave me a glimpse into what that might mean. I wish I could convey the whole experience to you, how good it was, how the holiness of it. As soon as I arrived in Alaska, David and I headed for Seward on the Kenai Peninsula and a kayaking trip in Kenai Fjords National Park. After an all-day boat ride, we anchored in a small cove, scaring a black bear off the beach as we did so. We got geared up, and we slid awkwardly into the skiff tied at the side of the boat, and from there down into our kayaks, the double kayaks we would be paddling for the whole trip. We were warm under a cloudless sky and bright sun as we got comfortable in our boats, practicing with new and uncomfortable gear, unfamiliar gear. I usually paddle a single boat, 14 feet long, with no rudder. David and I were in a double, and because I'm the more experienced paddler, I was in the back handling the rudder. Well, sort of handling the rudder. That took a little bit of practice. The mountains were green and lush, and they came straight down to the water through most of the fjord, and then they gave way to these little narrow beaches in the coves. I had expected the water to be the same dark blue as the cold waters of Maine, but fled by fed by glaciers and the silt they carry, the water is aqua-colored, freezing cold and tropical-looking. We saw bears and marmots, eagles and puffins. We paddled up to a cliff face that came straight down into the water and then shipped our paddles and moved along the side of the cliff using just our hands until we got to a waterfall that we could slide behind. We began to run out of words for awe and beauty and joy and amazement. We slept that night aboard the mothership in our idyllic cove with a view across five, eight, I'm not sure how many miles, to the Ialic Glacier, which was lit up in the evening sun. The next day dawned foggy, and the glacier, which had been so visible and beckoning to us, was hidden. Nevertheless, the captain and our guide knew the waters, and they took us west across to the west side of Fjord and anchored in the fog. And in the fog, we layered up with clothing, clambered down to the skiff, and made our way into our kayaks without dumping. And here's what I remember. I was giddy with excitement and with fear. I remember the weight of the life jacket firming me into the boat. I remember that feeling of being one with the kayak, floating on the water as if I had been given a pass, a special pass for a short while to be a marine mammal. The way the paddle slices through the water and the boat glides on the surface. I remember the hot sun breaking through the fog as we approached the glacier, and the ice floating in the water, 
growlers, brash, and burgy bits, from the size of a mouse to the size of our church building. And as you glide through, you have to be careful not to let your paddle turn a big bit, which can roll and swamp your boat. We came to a pause about half a mile from the glacier, as close in as it is safe to be, and we paused. And all around us was the tinkling and crackling of the ice as it continued to splinter and change. And beneath and beyond that soprano sound was the groaning and booming of the glacier itself as that river of ice made its ponderous way to the sea. A loud report like the sound of a cannon and a calf broke off and plummeted into the bay below. We tasted a bit of the brash ice, salt on the lips, and then the brightest, freshest water you can imagine. Hot sun, cold breeze coming off the glacier. Minutes, hours, who knows how long we sat there. At the beginning, where life is made on the brink of everything. The immensity of sky and sea and mountain. I remember understanding for the first time that cold is the womb of life, that the glacier pours endlessly into the sea, feeding it with minerals from the earth. I wish I could convey it all to you, the goodness and the holiness of that moment. How even now, just talking about it, I am filled with awe and a sort of fierce joy at the immensity of the earth, its relentless ongoingness, its utter indifference to me in my tininess, and the quick silver brevity of every single life, and the place of every single life in the family of things. But I probably don't need to convey it to you, because I am sure that each one of you has had your own intense experience of awe at the simple fact of being. Maybe, like me, you needed to travel far from your usual spaces for your encounter with the givenness of things and your own belonging to it. Maybe you needed that distance for reassurance that you are a part of everything that is and cannot be lost. But perhaps you came around a corner and saw it in sunlight shafting through pouring rain, as sometimes happens here in Oregon. Or maybe it was in a silent dawn after snowfall. Or the inexpressible beauty of your child's face in sleep. Or the way your longtime beloved's eyes light up with laughter so that all at once you can see them as they were five, ten, thirty-five years ago and love the whole of them all over again and anew. It is God's good pleasure to give us all and everything, to, to remind us that we belong to all that is. We belong. There will be enough. The God who created is creating still. When we see this, we are already in heaven, and there is no need to be afraid. So don't be afraid even when terrible things are happening right outside our door. It is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We are given these glimpses of the heart of reality 
to keep our hearts and minds filled with light. Because the times are evil, and we need that light to hold on to. You are part of everything that is, and the light of your soul is needed. Because the world is in a terrible state, blind to awe, blind to wonder, afraid, angry, rejecting, evil. And we, who know that all humanity belongs to God, have to stay awake. God is calling out to us all the time. God is calling us into action all the time. There is work to do. There is love to spread. There is injustice and oppression and violence to overcome. And Jesus tells us how. First, he says, reorient yourself. Get rid of possessions and give alms to the poor. Because where your treasure is, where your money and your time and your attention are, that's where your heart is going to be. And God's heart is on the poor and the widow and the orphan. God's realm is one where everyone belongs and everyone is clothed and fed and sufficed. The tricky thing about having enough is that enough is so very hard to define. And it can become an ever-receding horizon. The more we get, the more we focus on it. The more we feel that we need just one more thing, one more bank account, one more possession, one more accomplishment, and then we will feel really secure. We put our trust in stuff, and all we can see is stuff. And we live in a culture that is built to exploit this human tendency by feeding us the lie that we should borrow money we can't afford to buy things we don't need to give us the security and meaning we crave. Where our treasure is, there our heart is. I don't think any of us are exempt from this. A few years ago, I was in the market for a car. I had to let go of my beloved CRV, which had seen me back and forth across the continent and through 325,000 miles of travel. I loved that car. But I needed a commuter car, something that got great mileage, preferably a hybrid, and certainly on my budget, one that was pre-owned and gently used. I looked at Fords and Hondas and Toyotas, and I kept finding almost the right thing. My younger son kept encouraging me to consider a particular make and model, which I dismissed out of hand because it sounded far too posh and expensive. And besides, I couldn't remember ever having seen one on the road, so I had no idea that the model he was talking about was indeed a compact hybrid. Well, we found one on a lot, and I ended up buying it. It was actually a very good deal. But suddenly, everywhere I turned, there was my exact car on the road. Same make, same model, same year, even the same color. It was everywhere. I put my money there, and soon, my attention was filled. And let's not even discuss my attitude when my son dented the bumper backing into a pylon in a parking garage. I'm not a car person. I really know nothing about them. 
But suddenly, my pristine little car meant a lot to me, more in that moment than the feelings of my anxious son. Biblical scholar Rolf Jacobson told a story about this phenomenon of our attention turning. He went to dinner with a friend and a mentor, a man he deeply admired. And at the end of the meal, he noticed that his mentor very quietly, very generously tipped. And he decided, I want to be like him. And he too began to be a very generous tipper. And as soon as he did, he began to notice how many people's lives depend on tips, how tipping generously made him more attentive, not just to the people he actually tipped, the people he came into contact with, but news stories about people whose employers paid them woefully low wages and made them depend on tips, people whose employers stole their tips, people who lived on the economic margin. Where he put his money, his heart went. And where we put our time and our money, our hearts and our wills will follow. If our hearts are with the poor, if our treasure is with the poor, we will be motivated to act toward justice. We will be motivated to participate in the realm of God. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. God is not sitting idly by, watching our self-destruction. God is at work in every moment, the same dance of electrons and embrace of gravity vibrating with love, creating and creating grace in the very being of it. In every moment, God is mending what is from the depths of what is. Tragic or magic, momentous or mundane, every moment is a choice to join in harmony or sit idly by. Be ready. The light of the lamp of your heart lit enlightens the world and guides us in this darkness. Another meditation by Reverend Holmes. We as a congregation are making ourselves ready. We are making ourselves ready to seek God in every moment, to care for each other, to protect the earth, the great living earth that speaks to us in wind and glacier, heaving sea, and dust-blown canyon. We are making ourselves ready to welcome the stranger and the immigrant, to feed the hungry, to send clothes to the unclothed, to raise money to house the unhoused. Are we ready also to speak love and justice into the maelstrom of hate that is our current culture? Are we ready to work for gun safety? Are we ready to be not just non-racist, but actively anti-racist in our commitment to all of God's people. The kingdom of God is ours. To God's delight, both now and forever, here in this life and in life beyond life, how in this moment shall we turn our hearts and center our wills to share what we have been given? Don't be afraid, little flock. Take courage in God's good pleasure. Amen.